Good morning, everyone. Let's pray as we stand. God, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these wonderful passages, and thank you for the privilege of being able to look at these two wildly different gospel readings today. Just ask, Lord, that you would confound any preconceptions or expectations we might have this morning of who you are and reveal yourself to us in a new way. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. So I think we all have expectations of what we think God must be like, or uh, rather perhaps what we think God ought to be like. But the challenge comes for us as believers when God turns out to be different from what we expect. Or worst of all, actually, when God demands something different from what we expect. And when that happens, and it will happen, if he really is God and you really are human, occasionally he will do things that you do not expect. You will reach a key moment in your faith. Will you see that difference as evidence of your sin? And will you turn away from it? Or will you see that difference as evidence of his failings, and turn away from him. What happens when God fails to live up to our expectations? Let's start today with Mark 11. uh, You can turn to Mark 11 in Scripture or use the bulletin. It's that reading that we have traditionally on this day on Palm Sunday. So Mark 11, and Jesus enters Jerusalem in triumph. And at first, as Jesus comes into the city, he's hailed by the crowd as this king, this this triumphant king that they have been expecting for many years. Verse 8 begins, many spread their cloaks on the road. That's a very costly thing to do, to put your best piece of clothing down on the road and use it as a doormat for a donkey. But it's a cost that is worth paying if Jesus really is who they expect him to be. If he will live up to their expectations, then he's worth it. As we look through these passages, I want you to know that none of this is just random behavior. Both are laden with symbolism. And in the book of 2 Kings, for example, it tells us when Jehu was anointed king over Israel to mark his coronation in haste, meaning There was a kind of scramble or a rush to get in on the action. Every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So this action with their cloaks, with their clothing, is a declaration, I think, of of who they believe Jesus really is. It, It reveals something about their expectations. They think he is a king. Verse 8 continues, others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And these are symbolic as well. So there were palms and leafy branches in the temple, and there were palms on Jewish coins. And the palm was a Jewish symbol of nationalism and, and freedom and hope. It's a bit like your flag, which is just off camera here in the corner. You know, by dawn's early light, it's still there. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a to all foreign princes. We've got a flag. Don't tread on me. So they laid down their cloaks to honor the king. And they pick up their palms, I think, to rebel against oppression. Very symbolic. Next comes a prayer. 
It's a one-word prayer. Some of the best often are. Hosanna. And in Hebrew, it just means save or oh save. There's a kind of exclamatory aspect to it. But save. Now, one scholar believes Hosanna could actually have just been an empty phrase, just something fun to say. Uh, like at a game where you get excited and you just shout things. The, uh, the Israelites, a bit like the American people, had this proclivity towards public exuberance. There's a, you know, a whoop or an, an all right or a hot diggity dog, something like that. So I've, I've enculturated. You can see I'm practically indistinguishable from a local at any game now. There's a fine line, though, I believe, between scholarship and just making stuff up. And I genuinely do not know what this guy is talking about. I don't know how he got there. I think too many ball games, not enough uh, scripture reading. Hosanna is not a meaningless phrase like you would just shout after a few beers. It's a heartfelt prayer for deliverance. Hosanna is deeply laden with with theological meaning and, and history. There's an example of this very same Hebrew word, Hosanna, in 2 Samuel, where a widow in in dire straits begs a king for help. It's a, a desperate word you would say to a king. There's an example, not of the word, but of the concept in the passage right before the triumphal entry where a blind man recognizes who Jesus is and begs him for help. So I think that this, this little one-word prayer, coupled certainly with the cloaks and the palms, is, is designed to be a, a, a sort of prayer for deliverance and help. It's heartfelt, it's, it's meaningful. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They believe God sent him. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Very highly developed piece of theology going on here in the crowd. Look at the structure. Before we actually look at the words themselves, just look at the way they say it. Look at the structure of what they say. Hosanna, blessed, blessed, Hosanna. It's a very interesting way to say it. The the first and the last thing they say mirror one another, and the two middle things mirror one another. Hosanna, blessed, blessed, Hosanna. It's a deliberate echo. And uh, it's probable they were even singing it or saying it back and forth, uh, chanting it to one another, like we do in church, responsibly by half us at the asterisk. There's a reason why we do this stuff. We don't just make it up. It's, It's reading like a liturgical song. I suspect it reads like one because it is one, and it reads like a psalm because it is one, Psalm 118, where it says this, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So deeply symbolic, deeply grounded in in theology and deeply grounded in, in national expectation and Highly meaningful. In Luke's account of this same thing, the Pharisees clearly understood that this was in fact worship because they come up to Jesus and they invite him to rebuke the crowd. You can't accept this, they say to him, but he does. That's the structure. Then there's the words themselves. One of the greatest promises in the Old Testament is what we call the Davidic promise, a promise given to or through King David. And we look at it all the time. It's like every other sermon, but it's, it's a key promise. The covenant to King David. 
a prophecy that one day a descendant would descend from him and, and reestablish his throne forever. And over the years, since that promise to David, Israel has wandered and Israel has suffered and Israel has, has returned to that promise over and over again as a, a thing to hope for. All the Jewish hope was placed upon the shoulders of this Savior, this Messiah, this descendant, the promised prophet and priest and warrior poet and king, a sort of better David. And they knew that this eternal David, this ultimate king, would enter the town and save the nation. They knew it would happen one day. And all of that theology and all of that frustration and all of that waiting and all of that hope and all of that symbolism, I think, is bound up right here in a one-word prayer, Hosanna, save us. We have run out of any capacity to save ourselves. We have nothing. We need you, God, to step in. And Jesus steps in and they go crazy. So far, so good, right? Everything they've said is correct. Everything they've done is completely appropriate. Everyone is happy. God is doing what they expect. Here's the problem. What happens when God does something that you do not expect? What happens when he fails to live up to your expectations? It's a shocking thing, but let's fast forward just a few days I love the way on, on this Palm Sunday we get to have two readings from the same gospel. We don't normally do that. And it's shocking to think you're just turning a couple of pages and how completely different the scenario is when we get to Mark 15. Let's turn to verse 16. And it says there, Mark 15, 16, the soldiers led him away. If we were listening to the audio Bible on vinyl, the needle would scratch across the thing. Like, like what? I mean, one minute we were praising this amazing king who was going to boot out the Romans and usher in an eternal throne. And, and then now, those very soldiers he was supposed to defeat are leading him away. Look at how we got there. Perhaps just go back a couple of verses to Mark 15, verse 13. And as you do, you find Jesus is on trial. And Pilate is speaking to the crowd. And Pilate says, what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? He's just failed to live up to their expectations, that's all. And they shouted all the more, crucify him. Now, it is shocking, but I found this is what people do. When their expectations are not met, this is what people do. Now, I'm not Jesus, and I would like to just clear that up. But, uh, every now and then, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be treated a little bit like him, just a little tiny bit. And Jesus does call us to live like him and to follow him and to risk rejection for him and with him and through him. And uh, just a few times in my life, I've had the experience, I think, just faintly reminiscent of this one. And I say faintly, I cannot caveat that statement enough. But uh, I've met someone who's been really pleased to meet me. And sometimes 
uh, especially for a Brit, uncomfortably pleased to meet me, effusively thrilled with all of the wonderful things that my ministry is going to mean for them. And uh, I'm going to be the best pastor they've ever met in their life. And things go really well at first. And they keep going well until the very moment that I fail to do something that they expect. And I found in that moment things can get nasty and turn quite fast. Now, unlike Jesus, sometimes I disappoint people because I am disappointing. I'm a human. But uh, other times I disappoint people because I'm actually trying to follow Jesus. And I won't do their thing because it's wrong. Or I call them on their thing, that's even worse, because it's wrong. Uh, And suddenly, the minute I do it, I'm a bad pastor. Now, I don't think you have to be a pastor to experience this. Uh, Anyone leading anything will experience it. I actually think any any person interacting with another person will experience this at some point, where you fail to live up to something that was expected of you, and at that moment, the person who put their hope in you that can turn on you. Amplify that experience that you must have had at some point in your life. And see that this is something that we all do to God on a completely different scale. The crowd gets angry and they storm off. They turn on Jesus and they go looking for a different God. They go looking for someone who will meet their expectations. The most amazing thing about Christ is he understands this. He actually understands their suffering. He understands what they've been through. He understands that their past has indeed shaped their expectations of who he would be. But the wonderful thing about Christ is he's not at all swayed by the exuberant praise. Like He doesn't go to his head. He doesn't start to play to the crowd. And uh, he's not swayed either by the sudden change of heart. He cannot be manipulated either by their praise or by their threats. So he does something else completely unexpected. Something perhaps only God would do. He submits to this. Then we have another act of worship. It's a horrible parody of the first act. It's every bit as deluded as the first, but it's far more vicious than anything we've seen yet in these passages. Mark 15, verse 17. The soldiers clothed him in a purple cloak. And kings would wear garments like this, vassal kings. So any king under the authority of a greater king like Caesar would be given a cloak as a dual symbol, a symbol of their authority, but also a reminder that they were under a greater authority still. Cloak of scarlet or purple, Uh, Roman cavalry troops would have one as well, both a sign of authority, but also living under authority. This is a mockery of Christ's authority that we're seeing here. See, to the Romans, like the Jews, it was evident that he could not possibly be a king because he looks nothing like what they expected a king to look like. And then he's crowned, but with a crown of thorns, I was reading this week that some palms can have very sharp thorns on them. The the sharp thorns of certain species of palm are actually very brittle, so that if they they jab into you, they they break off and splinter inside of the wound and and make it even worse. And 
I think there's a parody of the palms here as well, as the symbol of freedom and the symbol of power is literally inverted and turned in on the king. Then there's a verbal mockery that, that parodies the praise. Hail, king of the Jews. That's what they'd say to Caesar. And they kneel, just like they would do to Caesar. But instead of kissing, as they would do to Caesar, they spit. They spit at him. I think a lot of people have wondered why it is that they are so vicious, even by their own standards. Why it is that they're so vicious to Jesus. I think it's relief. I think the Romans are as relieved as the Jews are disappointed. This is not what they expected. The Romans are glad it's not what they expected. Right here, we should be glad that he is not what they expected. We should be very glad that God does not live up to our expectations. Any normal person would fight them, just resist arrest. Any normal king, I think, would turn on them. Any normal judge would kill them all. And if he met their expectations, I think they'd be dead on the spot if he was going to be all that they thought he was going to be. The greatest thing about Christ is actually he completely misses our expectations. He does the most unexpected thing of all. He actually forgives those who have turned against him, and no one saw that coming. He's not there to defeat Rome and deliver Israel from occupation. It was never meant to be. That was never the point. He's there to defeat sin and deliver them from death. Now, he's not swayed by the flattery. He's not swayed by the violence and the rage because he knows that his kingdom is going to be far bigger than anything any of them expected. And his kingdom, unlike all human kingdoms, is going to be filled with grace. So he brings his kingdom. He brings his kingdom for the very people who have been rejecting him. He starts to pay for the sins of those who have fallen short of God. And he starts to reconcile them to the God that they have been disappointed in. Through their own rejection and their own rage, he turns those things into an act of salvation. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and it's the same story. We have a massive advantage, church, that they never had. We have way more information than they had. But we have exactly the same problems. And we have exactly the same choice. God is going to fail to meet up to your expectations if he really is who he says he is. So when he does, when God does something you don't expect, or worse, demands something that you don't expect, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn away from him and go looking for a God who will give you what you want? Or are you going to turn away from your sin and find grace? Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you're nothing like what we would come up with if we were designing a God. I thank you so much that you confound our expectations. And Lord, I just pray as we enter this holy week that you would prepare our hearts, help us to walk again through that majestic story of, of triumph and disappointments and suffering and shame 
and glory and resurrection. And we pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that in your grace, you would advance your kingdom more quickly than we expect and come again, Lord Jesus, soon. Amen.